Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. For those of you I haven't had the pleasure to meet yet, my name is Rhett Buttle, and um, I have the privilege of serving as a senior fellow here at the Aspen Institute in the Financial Security Program. Um, and for the last eight months, I've had the opportunity to work with both Ida Rademacher and Marine Conway on an amazing body of work uh, called the Reimagining Work and Wealth Initiative, which we're gonna hear a little bit about today. Um, today's event is really about sort of the lessons we've learned and how we're moving forward. Um, oh, is this not working? How's that? There we go. All right. Uh, today's event is really about lessons we've learned. Um, in some ways, this is the capstone of three amazing years of work. And so we're going to look back at some of that work, and we're also going to talk about how we continue to move this work forward. few housekeeping items. One is we are live streaming, and so would like uh, to invite the folks who are joining us via live stream to join into the conversation as well. We're using the hashtag, hashtag work and wealth. So I want to see lots of tweets from folks in the audience and lots of tweets from folks who are joining us online. Um, also, just quickly, one to announce that today we are really thrilled to uh, release our 2017 Economic Security Summit report. And I think many of you know a lot of the work that we do on the Reconnecting Work and Wealth Initiative happens at the Economic Security Summit, which will also happen this year in Aspen, July 9th through 12th. Um, this is an amazing report, um, and we're very fortunate to have Karen Kahn, who is the rapporteur for last year's report, here with us today. And so we want to thank her for all the hard work she did to capture uh, last year's lessons learned. Um, and we're very excited about the event this year as well. So just briefly, I want to thank the many participants of the initiative over the last three years. I also uh, want to thank uh, our partners, the Prudential Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Kellogg Foundation for their support of this amazing work over the last few years. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sarah Kay, who's the Vice President of Corporate Giving at the Prudential Foundation, who's going to moderate a wonderful conversation with Maureen Conway and Ida Rademacher. Sarah? Thank you, Rhett. Um, can you all hear me? <laughs> so as Rhett mentioned, I'm so um, thankful that you guys are all joining us today for this great conversation. Um, I'm Sarah Kay from Prudential Financial. And as many of you heard probably by now, uh, our company was founded over 140 years ago on the belief that everybody should have the opportunity to achieve financial security and a peace of mind for their families. Our founder, John Dryden, had a radical idea to provide affordable life insurance for working families. At the time, it went against the grain of business, and with that idea and with that first product, we created an inclusive market that provided financial protections for working families. We are still very much, uh, we still stay true to that founding belief that financial security should be within reach for all. But we know today in this economy that economic mobility is on the decline and that inequality is growing. We know that people are working hard, but they're not able to achieve the financial security and prosperity that was once available to people back in the day. And we know with these hard times that many Americans are seriously anxious about their finances, no matter what income bracket they're in. And so particularly from those from low-income underserved communities, those challenges are even far greater and those opportunity gaps are widening. And with these in economic inequalities, there are two fundamental components to this crisis, which is work and wealth. 
And that's why um, with these conversations that we've been having with the Aspen Institute, we approached the Aspen Institute to engage in this partnership to bridge these two siloed workspaces and these sectors that typically, both in policy and practice, hadn't interacted with each other. And so when we approached Ida and Maureen about this, we said, how do we bridge these two silos and how do we reconnect this conversation about work and wealth? Because you can't have one without another. A person's ability to earn a decent income and to build wealth are essential to that economic security. And so with that, I want to invite both Maureen and Ida to the conversation because we're going to hear a little bit about their thoughts and what they've learned as we've embarked on this partnership. And so. Am I supposed to be in the middle? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Might play musical chairs a little here. <laughs> so I'm sure you all know Ida and Maureen, who've been leading the Financial Securities Program and the Economic Opportunities Program. And I wanted to hear a little bit from the both of them in terms of when we embarked on this partnership, when we approached you all about this idea of reconnecting work and wealth, curious to hear what your thoughts were and what you thought was good and the value of collaborating between these two programs at the Aspen Institute. You want, you want to start? Yeah, I, could, I can start. Um, I mean, I, I think part of the start for me was deciding to come back to Aspen three years ago. Uh, I had been working for uh, a number of years, and I know Andrea Levere is going to be speaking late, uh, in the next piece of the panel uh, at Prosperity Now, focusing specifically on a lot of the wealth dimensions of low and moderate income households. And it was increasingly difficult to have um, a siloed conversation uh, when labor share of income is so clearly declining. So the idea that for practitioners in the field and for the overall conversation that you could continue to talk about how do you help people build real nest eggs when the underlying precarity of their day-to-day -day financial lives was looming so large felt like um, it felt disingenuous uh, to honor and respect those families who you knew had the same aspirations but had less and less of a toehold in the mainstream economy. So um, there's no place better to do collaborative work than Aspen. And nobody better to do it with than Warren Conway, because uh, I had actually worked with you uh, on uh, labor market strategies uh, in a prior life here at Aspen. So uh, the idea of bringing in uh, external partners that uh, would support that kind of collaboration as we really explored what's changing about financial markets and bring that into space with what's changing about labor markets uh, was an opportunity that you don't say anything but yes to. Great, and I, I guess I would just say, um, just to add a little bit from the perspective of the Economic Opportunities Program, um, uh, and as Ida well knows, we have a long history of sort of looking at uh, things kind of from the ground up. So in the Economic Opportunities Program, uh, we spend a lot of time in communities across the country looking at what are the range of things that local governments, nonprofits, and other organizations are doing to try to help people who feel um, outside of the economic mainstream to connect to economic opportunity. And we have two main work streams, which is helping people connect to work and connect to good work, and helping people um, in entrepreneurship to start businesses and, and to build their livelihoods in that way. Um, and, and I think about sort of the work we were doing to reconnect work and wealth 
you know, we were trying to, we'd been doing this work, um, we had this very deep work going on how people can connect to work and can move up in the, in the labor market. But the, one of the things that kept sort of dragging people down was they couldn't get to this basic level of economic stability that you get to when you have a measure of wealth, right? And so we really needed to think about how do we connect work and wealth so people can build the level of economic stability that they need to actually pursue economic mobility and to be able to pursue opportunity. So, um, so it was sort of like we were thinking about it from, the, from both the practice side and the policy side, from sort of both looking at the national numbers, but also looking at what's going on in communities. Sort of there is just this growing need to really think about how do you connect these, uh, these ways of thinking um, to really help families kind of manage their economic lives in today's economy. And I think one of the goals when we first embarked on this conversation was to change the national conversation and the dialogue and to catalyze new ideas. What do you both think in terms of the last couple of years we've accomplished through this reconnecting of work and wealth? Yeah, you know, I think the summits themselves trace an arc of that. We, we started out uh, in some ways with a pretty macro level conversation about, um, and, and, and at the same time, folks who were not traditionally literally in the same room together uh, that spoke different vernaculars, had different acronyms, often the same acronym meaning completely different things in a labor market <laughs> and a financial market. Equity, for example, quite different, <laughs> thinking about financial markets and, and labor markets. Um, uh, financial equity, uh, people's stake in an economy. There are people that start about this and very rarely actually think about the, the household implications of macroeconomic trends. And there's a lot of people that started the household that very rarely thought about the macroeconomic drivers of what was actually playing out in the day-to-day decision-making of firms in how they were investing or not investing or divesting uh, in their workforce. And so at the very beginning, we were trying to find our feet in a shared conversation. Um, and what was really what I think is one of the values of that is that we were able to uh, quite genuinely um, be in service of the dialogue. So uh, the first year's set of people that came together uh, really informed who could be around a table the next year and how much more you could reach across, how much more time you needed actually for off-the-record conversations and sidebar conversations to spark collaborations. And we'll talk, I think, some about some of those things. Um, but for some of that, I mean, I would say, you know, that was genuinely in service of the shared conversation. It also, for me, uh, really, informed the work I did back in the mainstream programming of the financial security program. Uh, we launched EPIC, the Expanding Prosperity Impact Collaborative, which is an 18-month deep dive into one financial challenge at a time. You know, What are the dimensions of it? What are the drivers of it? How do you solve it? Who commits to solving it? And the first thing we took on was income volatility, because from doing this work and wealth conversation, we really understood that the, it wasn't just wage stagnation anymore that was one of the problems with how do people, to have people have sufficient funds to build wealth. It's that the cash flow of how do they even be able to plan on that was different. And we had to really explore those dimensions of income volatility as the very first financial challenge. So I'd say that um, just the generosity of participants in the conversation as we convened together really did help inform and I think strengthen the individual work we were doing in the financial security program and hopefully in the field that we try to influence uh, around some of those financial security innovations uh, in financial markets. Yeah, I mean, just a couple things just to add to that. Um, so one, I do, I do think it was, it was interesting how we went sort of from this 
first conversation where people, it, it was a surprise to me, the degree to which um, people weren't in the same rooms. I mean, you know, we've sort of brought some people from DC out to Aspen, and you think like, well, you, you are, you know, one of those DC people who seems to know everybody. How come you weren't in a conversation with some of these people yeah. before? Um, so that was really actually surprising in some ways. And I think it was even surprising to the people in the room. Um, and the, the thing I think that's been really gratifying, I, I mentioned a little, is you know some of the collaborations that have come out of this, and also just some of the reflections we've heard back from people about how it's informed their 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 thinking. Right? Um, I think it's certainly informed our work and how we think about things. Um, uh, I was uh, just talking earlier about how it. Um, has informed how we've thought about and talked about some of the job quality work that we're doing, right? And sort of building a richer understanding of what does it mean to have um, a quality job in somebody's financial life and sort of bringing these conversations together. While we were speaking a different language, I think sort of borrowing some of each other's language has actually been helpful in terms of sort of how do you have a richer conversation about issues that are, are really sort of um, um, present for for families today. And, and the other thing I guess I think about that is it really has, you know, we've been able, we've been really privileged to bring people together who are really um, working hard in many spheres to try to say, we've got a lot of economic challenges in this country and how do I bring my expertise, how do I bring my talents, how do I bring uh, the work of my organization to really trying to move forward on some of those. And I think it's really broadened the palette for a lot of people of thinking about, well, well, why is it that this thing that I, you know, I've been working on my whole life, why isn't it having more impact? And and giving them opportunity to connect it to a broader set of economic issues, I think, has really opened up um, opportunities for folks to do to do um, more meaningful work, and and that's been really, really rewarding to see. Yeah. Can I have one thing, Sarah? Yeah, and I'd actually I'd put it as a question, maybe back to you mm -hmm. as well. I mean, uh, I I think at Aspen it's always a little bit hard to. Um, you're never sure if you are creating a trend when you start talking about something, if you're hitching your, you know, uh, you know, your you know, wagon to somebody else's. But I do think that there's been a real confluence of um, this unpacking of people's financial lives and the context of the changing nature of work that has meant that while we haven't seen a lot of real data yet, uh, we've seen a, an emergence of just huge interest among employers in uh, the financial wellness of their workforce. And so that really, you know, in some ways has, um, I think, if the goal is changing a national conversation, uh, and, and ideally, uh, when you're at Aspen, you're changing it in a way that means that leaders uh, in all sectors are thinking, how do I solve this problem? You know, like they're changing, they're not just thinking about it, they're actually uh, people who are in a position to make a difference. And I see a lot of people leaning in to thinking hard about, um, the additional dimensions of uh, a benefits platform that would lead to financial wellness. Now, that's not everywhere. That's why we've kind of will be unpacking these three buckets that you see in the report around incentives, uh, the future of in incentives about what incents employers and institutions, what are the new kinds of institutions so that you have to invent or reinvent, and also ownership. But I think that there's more people grappling with those things, and I think they're connected to a network that's going to help them with problem solving there. So I, I wonder, though, I mean, mm -hmm. I think you were actually working on this at Prudential at the same time. So agree that this financial wellness focus is a growing piece of the 
the work? Yeah, I think just across the private sector in general, whether you are a financial services company like ours or others, you're looking at your employees' health, and that is across the whole spectrum of whether it be their well-being in terms of their health or in terms of their financial health. And for us, it was really looking at all these studies that were out there by other companies and then our own financial wellness studies that says that six out of 10 employees are stressed about their financial situation. And that imp impacts an employee's productivity, their absenteeism, um, how they're producing at work. And so we took a look at how can we make sure that our products are addressing these needs for our clients and our customers. And our clients and customers range from individual customers to employer-based platforms. And so really taking a look at how do these individual financial stressors that uh, impact people from across the range, whether they are at the low to moderate income levels or at a upper, middle to upper level income levels, they still face the fi same financial shocks and emergencies that place them back at ground zero if there is an emergency that takes place. And so as a company, it's, it's our responsibility to make sure that our clients and customers are financially well and that they are able to manage their day-to-day -day expenses, they're able to manage their um, financial goals, and really look towards the future. And that's something that companies, for a long time, just talked, you know, talked a little bit insularly about our products, and now really thinking about the well-being of the entire society and community at large. And so I think that there has been a movement in the private sector space in that. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you all is that um, I think surprising and challenging at the same time was this different language uh, that the two sectors had in terms of, you know, use the example of equity and other words that people use in the workforce side versus on the financial capability side. And so I was curious from your perspective, uh, what were some of the things that were challenging and how have you overcome them to bridge these two areas together? You want to tackle it first? Oh, okay. yeah. oh, yeah. She gives yeah. me this question first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, well, the language was 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 definitely definitely. Um, I think I think one thing. I think um, I think it was surprising. I mentioned sort of how people hadn't been in the same conversation before. I think that that was kind of a challenge to have people sort of feel comfortable that they. Um, understood each other, that they that they actually could find their common go goals and, and um, common purpose together. I think that that was important to you know take some time to build that. Um, I th I think that um, you know even even some ways you know some of the statistics that I would typically follow may be different than the statistics that Ida would typically follow, right? So even even how we were building sort of our, our what is narrative of the world was slightly different and being able to bring those pieces together. Um, you know, Ida frequently cites the statistic about people, how much they have in savings and whether they can meet an emergency, right? I'm, I'm typically looking at sort of um, you know, sort of one in four adults earns a wage that's insufficient to lift a small family above the poverty line, right? So we think about it in slightly, slightly different terms, what the economic crisis means. Um, so I think kind of, kind of bringing those things together and having people be able to sort of see each other's descriptors as well as um, having a conversation where people can see, uh, can build an understanding of each other's um, incentives and motivation and why that why they're doing the work that they're doing I think taking the time to do that um, so it was a a challenge but also be uh, you know a very worthwhile and a, and a reward on on the other side um, all right you can talk about how I'm challenging to work with no, no. This is, I mean I think collaboration overall I think something that's a, a real learning of 
of, of both of our programs is it, it actually takes more time and resources to get collaboration right than less, you know? So it's actually, you know, it, it, it's not like it's a cost savings. And I, I think I credit the supporters of this work and understanding that if you're trying to get a flywheel moving, you know, the, the, the amount of force that has to get it started and the, um, the resistance to it, right, is hard. And so for all of us, we had to try on, um, you know, some new ways of working. And again, it really helps to work with such generous colleagues. Uh, and also, I just want to give a big shout out to the, the participants. They made things that could have been incredibly challenging less so. And there's so many in the room. There's, you know, been three years now. So, you know, while there's always some overlap, maybe 150 people that are all kind of tips of the, their own iceberg networks in terms of what they bring to the conversation. So I would say more surprising than challenging was, um, how eager everybody was to get outside of their norms, how, how eager everybody was to learn. Um, the um, inflection points and tipping points of a problem from somebody else's perspective. And so we did uh, just a whole set of real starting points that were quite different from each other around the, the issues. So uh, it was very different, for example, to have uh, somebody from a labor union come in and see everything as a frame for uh, you know, how do you organize the voice of workers and worker power, and have that come into the same conversation as a startup that's trying to disrupt work completely and in some ways give a whole different um, approach to how markets change, right? So there was just very different. So the challenging pieces of conversation, and I think we, we do challenge well at Aspen, you know, where we really encourage disagreement at the table, but we encourage that in service of a productive conversation. And so uh, this idea about what is the role of markets in solving the problem? What is the role of government in solving the problem? And if it is government, is it local? Is it state? Does it need to be international trade? You know, I think somewhat of what we normed on last year was a lot of the upstream drivers to both what's happening with financial markets and labor markets being just the broader role that financial markets are playing in driving the ways that in companies make investment decisions and the ways that uh, disruptions in financial markets are changing even how people uh, get access to products and services. So you know, I, I, I don't mean to punt on the conversation. I just mean that I think on net um, for the American people and for the different kind of leaders who have come to these tables, both from the community level all the way to corporate CEOs, um, uh, the, the surprise was it wasn't so much of a challenge to have these conversations. And I just encourage us to continue, even though this is a capstone of a three-year initiative, uh, really a commencement of it, um, that we actually just see this as a starting point. There's so much work, and the agenda that we begin to lay out this year is just so exciting. Um, and even in, if the conversation in DC doesn't feel like it's got a lot of traction right now, in the rest of the country, it's got incredible traction, and it's the conversation people want to be having. Yeah, and just um, since uh, as our supporter of this initiative, I wanted to say one tactical thing that's been very challenging is it's been a real challenge to sort of keep up with sort of, well, where are people going with this conversation and what are they doing next? But I, I did also just want to say that, you know, while we keep referring to the summit, which has been sort of the big, yeah. you know, sort of the centerpiece of the REAM work, Re reconnecting Work and Wealth Initiative, it's not the whole thing. And we've been doing a lot of other work on some of these issues around um, incentives, institutions, and ownership. We did the, the work on, on employee ownership in particular and thinking about that. But you know, a lot of that work has been driven by people coming to us after 
the summit and sort of saying, here's something I want to work with, and you are the folks we want to work with on. How do we, how do we drive forward this question of what are the new institutions that will help you know, support workers in this changing economy, and what does that look like, and how can we have a, have a next set of conversations around that? So I just wanted to say that you know, it's really, I think, um, it's been challenging to understand where are people going with all of this work, but it did, just to also echo what Ida was saying earlier, it does seem like people are really um, taking it forward and, and driving things. And so, um, and I guess we're going to get to hear more about that in the next panel, so maybe I should be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just end on this last note. I think going off of both what you both have said, you know, from Prudential as our commitment is that we are staying true to this commitment that we believe that everybody should have the opportunity to achieve financial security, and that comes from the income and the asset side. And so as you both see this work moving forward with the third economic security summit coming up, what, do you, what would you like to see in this next year or two? Okay, um, sure. Well, I, you know, so I mean, I, so, um, so what I so I've been doing, you know, within that within my program area, we've been doing a lot of work on um, on sort of how do we think about um, work, the changing nature of work, and what does it mean to have quality work in today's economy, and you know, so I'm I'm really looking forward to opportunities to to broaden and enrich how people think about that, how they understand that, how they understand the multiple drivers of that opportunity and, and what that means for the very for you know individuals, for businesses, for government, for uh, the social sector. How do we, how do we um, how do we think about the role of work in our society and how do we think about um, quality work and how we value work and, and what that looks like. And so, so, so for me, it's been enriching to have this conversation and I think it's open um, opportunities to kind of bring that forward and continue to connect that to the wealth conversation. And, and I, I think that that's, that's really valuable. And I think just, you know, looking forward at a, at, at a, you know, at a really sort of practical level, I think we have a lot of opportunities to, to I mentioned we sort of work kind of from the ground up. We have a lot of opportunities to sort of lift up things that are working and try to facilitate, you know, facilitate the uh, engagement of more communities and, and sort of addressing the challenges of work. So, so I think this has really been, been really um, helpful to that conversation and looking forward to carrying it even further and connecting it even more to thinking about work and wealth. I love it. <laughs> uh, and I think just quickly for, for me, it's been interesting that, so we spent a lot of the time in the Work and Wealth Initiative really trying to get everybody's heads around a shared set of problems across these different markets and their implications for households. Um, and that has meant in some ways when you have to deal with first order problems first that a lot of the short term insecurity issues of workers have been what presented as the issues to have to tackle. My goals for the next few years will be both to really go ahead and focus this pivot to solutions, you know, and the networks we need to build the, for solutions and an evidence base for those solutions. And also, quite frankly, to get back to wealth. You know, I do think that uh, in some ways we tend to think that you have to deal with income before you can deal with assets, that you have to deal with short term before you can get to long term. That's a, a false trade off. Uh, we have to tackle both. There are policy incentives and platforms for both. And so in the commitment to solutions, I want us to get back to really owning that, um, that we can't wait 
to start talking about um, the wealth component uh, and double down on that in ways that I think many of us have been uncomfortable to do uh, because of where that conversation has led us in terms of a 99% and a 1%. We can't afford to wait anymore as a, as a country to have that conversation. And uh, I think it matters to democracy and I think it matters to the economy. So I think, uh, I think that's where we're gonna go. So with those next steps, we'll turn it back over to Rhett um, for the next panel. Thank you. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. And while we're doing our stage change, I'd like to invite our panelists up to the stage. Alice Mazur, who's the founding partner of the Commonwealth. Allison Omens, who's managing at Just Capital. Andrea LeVere, the president of uh, Prosperity Now. And Todd Green, who's the recently appointed executive director of the Atlanta University Center Consortium. Is this working? Ah, there we go. All right. Um, so I did a brief intro of who you are and who your titles, but I think I would love to open the conversation just a little bit with, tell us a little bit about who you are, your organization, but more specifically, you know, what is your organization's vantage point on this work and how exactly sort of that particular vantage point has shaped your thinking around reconnecting work and wealth. So Alex, can we start with you? Great. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I will say as the uh, lone Canadian on the panel, I, I know that we're having some trade conversations right now. <laughs> we love collaborating with Americans. So, uh, I asked him if we charged him to get here. but uh. Exactly. Uh, so um, I'm uh, one of the co-founders of a company called Commonwealth. Uh, we, we work on basically issues of retirement security. And the thing we're most interested in is how can we take an institution that we think works very well uh, which is the pension or collective retirement plan, and try and adapt it to the realities of a 21st century workforce. So at the very essence of the problem we're trying to solve, which is really a retirement plan coverage and a retirement insecurity problem, it is an intersection of work and wealth. Because we have to think not only about efficient um, wealth accumulation and decumulation strategies, which is really about the retirement plan design, but we also have to think about the changing nature of work which is about job tenure, which is about the growth of non-standard work, which is about changing institutions like labor unions and, and how that dynamic is changing and changing workforce practices. So you know, I think this framework has been very, very helpful to us in connecting up uh, you know, silos and industries and sectors that, that often don't talk to each other. Um, and we try to think a lot about not only the financial side of things, but also the kinds of institutions, I think we'll talk more about that later, uh, that would help uh, deliver these, uh, th these kinds of retirement benefits. Absolutely, and we definitely want to dig down more in the institutions piece. But Allison, you guys have had some really exciting weeks. Congratulations to you and the whole team at Just Capital. Tell us a little bit about you and sort of your guys' intersection with the work. Sure, so um, Just Capital is a nonprofit. We were founded about four years ago. And we basically exist to connect the values and priorities of the American people with corporate America. And we're looking through and trying to incentivize different ways that we can create um, environments in which companies can live up to those values. So we extensively pull people on what they think companies should be doing today and then we take that framework and create metrics around it to actually measure the thousand largest publicly traded um, companies in the US 
Um, last week, as Red is referring to, Goldman Sachs licensed our list of how um, of how all the companies are performing and launched a financial product called an ETF from it. Um, it ended first day of trading with uh, over 250 million assets, um, which is um, one, which is one of the largest ETF launches in history and the largest ESG fund, which means sort of all the environmental, social, and governance issues that companies um, sort of identify and, and track. So it's one example of um, the work that we're doing to try and incentivize better corporate behavior and sort of, um, you know, to, your, to the sort of this question of how does this framework work for us, basically we're trying to charge and sort of ask the questions of companies, are you, um, you know, are you living up to all of these issues the American people care about and simultaneously trying to create the incentives that makes that easier for companies to be living up to them. And Todd, you have an interesting, congratulations. Thank you. you have an interesting perspective given your previous role and your current role. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about the, the frame and sort of your previous role and, and sort of looking forward? Sure. Uh, I've had an opportunity to engage with several people in this room in my previous role uh, at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, where I led our uh, workforce development efforts across the Federal Reserve System. So there, of course, we thought a lot about both workers and their economic returns. But we also thought a lot about um, how that fit into companies to make sure that our economy was growing very uh, at a uh, at an optimally productive uh, way. Uh, so uh, uh, that job is about four days a week old now, <laughs> and I now am in the day four of my new job, which I'll say is a bit less esoteric and really more focused on more directly about the people who are facing this issue with respect to thinking about work and wealth. So I am now the new executive director at the uh, Atlanta uh, University Center Consortium, which is uh, that consortium is composed of four historically black colleges contiguously located in Atlanta. It's the largest and oldest. Uh, so it's uh, Spelman College, Clark Atlanta University, Morehouse College, and Morehouse School of Medicine. And so there, I'll be working on issues that actually speak to this very issue. Uh, so if you think about the history of these uh, institutions, they were really founded uh, by benefactors who uh, were interested in helping people emerge out of slavery and into positions of connecting, uh, building wealth, but also developing skills that were outside of the agrarian uh, perspective into ones that could help them to, to prosper. So that's a little bit about, uh, about that, but I wanted to, to share with you, um, already I'm sharing a quote from one of the, one of the uh, former presidents of Morehouse College, but he was actually the mentor to, um, uh, to Martin Luther King. And this quote was just, I think it really brings home uh, the perspective that we have here. And, and uh, Dr. Mays writes, he who starts behind in the great race of life must forever remain behind or run faster than the man in front. And I think the work that we're all doing here today is to try to get people faster in that race. But the other part of it is, is that we've got to do, and, and Ida alluded to this, but this work is in the now, and we need to figure out ways. And that was a, a great thing about coming to uh, the summit last summer, was to be in a room with people who actually forced my own thinking about making sure that this issues that these issues were addressed now, and of course, uh, with having a, a high degree of economic prosperity across the country, we know that there are opportunities to, to kind of translate that to, the, to, um, to people uh, who may not have been able to participate. 
Thanks, Todd. And Andrea, I know Prosperity Now has been deep in this work. Can you share a little bit from your vantage point and all the exciting things you guys are doing? Sure, nothing like starting with an inspiring quote, <laughs> right, for all of us. So um, I'm the president of Prosperity Now. We have a mission of helping all people build financial stability, wealth, and prosperity. Uh, but I want to talk about how these two threads really were grounded in the founding of the organization 39 years ago and are being reinvented, I think, given how dramatically the world has changed today. So when we were founded as the exquisitely named Corporation for Enterprise Development 39 years ago, it was really an organization that was trying to create jobs, but also address wealth inequality. But of course, we didn't know what that word meant or that, in fact, was what we were doing. And really, the root was there was a major recession going on in the country. Let's see if people can invent their own jobs through self-employment and actually build their own wealth. And we came out with three lessons, which really are our core lessons that we work on today. One, that low-income people have more capacity than they have opportunity. And it's our responsibility to create the on-ramps into the economy. It gets back to what we'll talk about in terms of the extraordinary racial wealth gap of the fact that there's not a level playing field at all. Secondly, we discovered that low-income people, when given the same structures and incentives that middle and higher income people get all the time, can succeed at exactly the same rates and levels. So it's all about how do we set up the systems and the institutions so they work. And the final thing is that it's incumbent on us, and this is where we have to change the language, to turn the safety net into a ladder so people don't just stop at a certain place. And what we've seen in the dramatic restructuring of the labor markets, and which we'll talk about more, the fact that there's been this huge risk shift from institutions mostly in the labor market onto individual households. We have to change how that works by really blending the labor markets with the safety net to build that wealth. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrea. So what I'd like to do is I think you've heard a lot about how the work has evolved over the three years. We spent a lot of time really identifying a common set of problems. And as we're looking forward, really starting to think about institution uh, uh, solutions. And so one of the things I wanted to do was dig down a little bit on some of those three streams that we've talked about. And Allison, I want to start with you with kind of the incentives piece, because I think working with employers, you have sort of a unique perspective, especially as you're thinking about sort of upstream incentives and working with business. How is Just Capital thinking about that? More than just thinking about it, you guys are doing it. And, and what does that look like? Yeah. So um, so we, you know, we're a new organization that's still experimenting with what incentives actually look like. Fundamentally, we believe that companies need more information on, um, on how and what they should actually be focused on, um, particularly on work and wealth questions. Our polling shows that um, the big issue by quite a bit that people care about have to do with how you treat your workforce as well as other core operational um, issues so so we're focused um, we're sort of focused on these questions of what do companies need to pay attention to how do we ask those questions into the c-suite and ensure that um, ensure that um, the CEOs actually are looking at these questions within their workers we sort of famously cite Mark Bertolini, the CEO of Aetna, who um, didn't know 
know that a certain percentage of his workforce was on food stamps. And once he did, he addressed it and raised wages. So, so we fundamentally believe that working with companies and investors is an important role to be playing to be addressing these core questions, both at a systems level, um, at a market level, as well as sort of within companies. What does work look like today? Um, and we're analyzing and ranking companies according to those things. So we believe that we can create a better race to the top among companies who are raising their hands and saying, we want to be better, but we don't know how and we don't know what to focus on. Um, and then we're trying to create financial products to sort of help capital along to be working with investors, whether it's institutional investors um, or others, to be recognizing that there is an investor um, case for this behavior, that companies who are making more long-term decisions, um, investing more in capital expenditures, investing more in their workforce and training, um, you're seeing better returns, you're seeing better retention rates, um, and overall, you're, you're a healthier company in the long term. So we're trying to make that case, and um, simultaneously, just one other thing, um, this space still doesn't have enough data. We don't actually know what's happening um, among companies. And there's increasingly a conversation around uh, being a good employer and companies raising their hand and saying, we want to be creating jobs that allow people to bring their full selves to work and that purpose is really important. But what we're trying to do is sort of build the back end and actually uh, look at um, publicly available and crowdsourced data to understand what's actually happening um, and analyze companies according to those things. That, um, that it's not enough to just be publicly talking about it, that we actually need to ensure that it's actually happening and what are those metrics and what are those data sources to be measuring according to those things. That's really helpful. Alex, I want to turn to you next to talk a little bit about sort of the institution's work. I know Allison was talking about sort of what's going on with products. I think you guys have been at the forefront of the work that you're doing with retirement. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how your work on retirement and sort of the Reconnecting Work and Wealth Initiative, the, the sort of institution stream has sort of influenced your work? And Todd, I'd like to hear from you on, on that as well. Sure. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll try to get a bit more specific about how we think about institutions. So. Um, I guess one way to think about it is a, is a layer uh, of solutions that is somewhere in between the public policy layer and the kind of products layer. Um, and it's one that we think is really important. And the reason why is uh, when you think about retirement, that story has played out in very much the same way that Andrea has talked about in terms of a risk transfer uh, from institutions uh, to individuals, uh, largely in the form of the decline of the corporate uh, pension plan. And you know, there are many reasons for that. And part of how we try to think about it is not to sort of blame employers for doing that, because a lot of, the, a lot of those forces have to do with changes in the economy. But actually to think about what are ways in which we can continue to have institutions to protect people, protect workers, that don't leave them on their own for retirement, that actually take into consideration the changes in the uh, labor force and the economy. And so for us, that looks like partnerships with labor unions, partnerships with associations, in some cases, partnerships with sectors uh, to design and manage collective retirement plans that are portable from job to job and that protect people, in our view, and based on the evidence, much better than uh, a do-it-yourself type of arrangement. Um, but this is a new space as well. And I think one thing that's been terrific about being able to collaborate with, with Aspen and the entire Aspen community is th there are a lot of things that have to be, have to be tested out. Um, this does require collaboration across sectors. I don't think it's uh, something that one sector can solve on its own. And so you know, I think one way in which the, the Aspen work on this has inspired us 
as an organization is, you know, we, we've been working on this initiative in Canada, uh, which launched a couple of weeks ago, called the Common Good Retirement Initiative, which is all about getting a portable retirement plan, national portable retirement plan for the nonprofit and charitable sector, which has almost a million workers in Canada with no retirement plan. And that's really a collaboration between philanthropic capital, uh, progressive employers in the sector who care about decent work, um, retirement experts, and the private sector. And you know, in a way, it's an experiment to see if we can get something going. Uh, but it's that type of leadership uh, from the sector and the kind of collaboration where we look to the Aspen model as a bit of, a, of an inspiration for how do, you get, how do you get sectors to work together to lead on these kind of uh, 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 cross-disciplinary issues. Helpful. Todd, can you touch a little bit on sort of the regional piece of this? I think it's really interesting that you're based in the South with so much going on and all the work you do with underrepresented communities and sort of the role that the institution stream is sort of inspired for your work. Well, definitely. Uh, and I think what I'd like to do, though, is maybe begin by two people who actually inspired and was really the background for a lot of the work as I think about it. One is uh, Rick Wartsman, who wrote a fantastic book. Uh, about the kind of the history of the middle class, and I think it, and what what's happened about how it kind of hasn't uh, turned out, and what companies have done or not done in order to support that, and so I think that work is really foundational to thinking about the past is always instructive about the future, and uh, in thinking about the future, Ray Bashar, my former co colleague at the Federal Reserve, has also done a lot of work that I think helps to helps me to understand that a lot of this work is related to where you were born, or when you were born, rather, and uh, also around uh, your race, because there's been some discrimination, and, uh, et, et cetera. So really, the lens that, that has been most intriguing to me, and hopefully this was the voice that I helped to bring to the summit last year, was along these dimensions. One is around geography, because when we talked about institutions, one of the challenges that I had was that these institutions didn't behave in the way that I'm accustomed to institutions behaving. And I mean not only the, the institution which we might think of as the company, but also all of the other types of um, uh, public agencies that support that. In many cases, uh, uh, there were questions in my mind about whether or not these institutions were actually wanting people to, to move ahead or to achieve wealth. Uh, and then the other, the other part of that, um, of course, is um, the racial component. Um, and there's been people of color, have, there's lots of work around uh, discrimination. And I think that in order for us to have a, a, a fulsome conversation about what this really means and how we can achieve it, we also have to think about place and we have to think about the population. And so bringing that down, um, I have seen a few things that have worked well, or at least I think are very promising in, in a Southern context, where arguably we don't, I know we don't have the monopoly on racial issues in the South, and nor do we have you know, uh, these historic things, but the South was really built on uh, cheap land and cheap labor. And so that's the way, that's the mentality or the approach that a lot of people are, are, are approaching uh, this from. Of course, the economy, the current economy, is helping people to, to evolve around that. So just a few practical examples. I'll mention them really quickly. One, one is the Atlanta airport, which is um, how many people have flown through the Atlanta airport? OK, yeah. So we have an expression in the South, if before you go to heaven or hell, you got to transfer, you got to connect in the Atlanta airport. <laughs> But, but you, I'm sure that you may not have thought about the fact that the Atlanta airport is the largest economic engine in the Southeast. 
Uh, but it's also the, a very large home of very low-wage workers. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is a beginning to have some level of recognition about how do we provide opportunities and pathways so that people can have uh, wealth and just have some level of sustainability uh, and, and opportunity. So looking at things about having a, a university on campus where people can upgauge their skills, but also pathways to get people out of the hospitality or restaurant, um, uh, fast food restaurants into logistics. So there's an organization called Career Rise, which has um, been generously funded by, uh, by foundations to help to take a look at that, who's been modeling a lot of these practices. And employers are really stepping up to the plate, and that's been a very exciting uh, kind of uh, perspective about it. Then the second one, um, and I certainly don't want to take credit for this, Nancy Cantor, who's now the, chan uh, the chancellor at Rutgers, uh, but her work at Syracuse was about using institutions like universities, hospitals, airports as anchor institutions. So how can we think about these particular um, entities who, by the way, oftentimes have large employment shares within regions, and if we can get them to change their behavior, then that can also have the ability to um, influence the behavior of uh, traditionally private sector employers. So we've been working a lot in, in our community, in our sets of communities, about how do we move this forward in helping people to, helping these institutions be leaders around um, strategies that could include procurement or, or other things that can help to build wealth with uh, small businesses. So I'll just, uh, perhaps I'll just stop there and, and I can share more. It's a good transition to Andrea. Andrea, you said something on our prep call that's stuck with me. You said, I think we're at a real breakthrough regarding financial wellness. So can you tell us what so you first, meant by that? I will. First I'll <laughs> and, say, um, oh, go ahead. Rick. Well, and, and then just more broadly, sort yeah. of how this work in the ownership stream has, has influenced. Has been there. So you should know that my daughter went to Syracuse when Nancy Cantor was the chancellor, and her nickname was Chancy Nancy. Oh, just okay. so you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to take that question and go back to what Ida say, which is as we think about these issues, it's no longer an either or. We can't do that. So let me start with one of the areas we're working, looking at, which is opportunity youth employment programs. So uh, what used to happen? You'd go through this great training program. These young people would get their first job, and they'd get a check, and where would they go? Where would they go? They'd go to the check casher, right? They don't have an account. They're not banked. Their parents are not banked. The data point, on average, a financially underserved person spends $2,400 a year on fees and interest. So when we would be challenged, or I don't know, attacked by saying, you can't ask poor people to save. You know, they don't have enough money for things. We'd say, we just get them into a fair and affordable account, and if they only save half of that, suddenly look what they have. So the issue around financial wellness has been an issue that we've looked at within the public sector and very deeply in the private sector, and Sarah's been a real leader in this which is essentially it is a good business practice to reduce the financial stress that workers are having at all levels, but also to be innovative about what are the platforms that are ready to scale this work. So uh, two weeks ago, we released a paper 
on savings for now and savings for later. And that's also not an either or proposition. People need desperately, and uh, Ida shared one data point on this, savings for emergencies. Otherwise, a small expense, the average payday loan is less than $500. A small expense can get someone in a spiral forever and affect their work life and their productivity and performance and undermine the overall community assets that we have. So we have several different platforms that are now becoming very powerful platforms to address this. And the workplace is one. We'll talk more about how that's happening. But um, it is a place where there's all these innovations about how do we help someone automatically get an emergency savings as well as help to save for the longer term and do the pioneering work that Alex is doing for retirement. How do we use tax time, which is the time when low-income working people through the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit are getting the most amount of money that they're going to see in an entire year. So with the incredible help of the um, academic Catherine Eden, whose agent, my friend Lisa, is in the room, helped, who researched for two years people who got the earned income tax credit and found out that for the first six months of the year, they were in positive cash flow. After six months, they went into negative cash flow. And where did they go? They went to the payday lender. If we could get them to save just a portion of that, a refund to Savings Act, and then have them hold it for six months, and then even have an incentive to match it, they would suddenly have a completely different financial outlook just leveraging that platform. And I'll close with one final note, which is the District of Columbia was supposed to um, basically approve the first refund to savings program, only it was the day of the Washington Capitals parade. <laughs> so they decided they could not uh, have a hearing on this, which I thought was actually the right priority. But then it's coming up on the 26th. So one of the things I want to talk about is many more of the innovations yep. that certain wonderful financial services companies are doing to link different automatic savings products to retirement accounts and other things. So we want to get to your guys' questions. I want to do one more round, which I think is hopefully the exciting piece. And Todd, I'm going to start with you. So I'm going to uh, give you a little bit of heads up. I'm really excited. I, I'd love to know like, what excites you, and, and what are the areas of action that you see sort of in this body of work going forward? But maybe more importantly, who else needs to be part of the work going forward? Yeah, so uh, I'll just speak to the current context that I'm in now, and that is uh, within this great consortium of being around some very, very smart young people, many of whom, not all of whom, but many of whom may have come from very humble beginnings, uh, often first-generation students uh, who haven't been exposed or certainly who are not, um, who, who don't have wealth. But looking at um, how we're providing financial training, financial literacy, but matching that with, with, uh, with job skills. But the third component, and I think this is really really critical, and this is another one, I have to give credit to Maureen for, for helping me to think through this, and that has to do with how do we empower these young people who are uh, matriculating into wonderful jobs into feeling like they have a voice about their own destinies. So uh, 
you know, you, you can select companies based upon the types of criteria that are important to you, but places where you actually have a voice. And I think that that's something new, that's a new concept to them, because many of them uh, who have worked have not worked in those types of environments, and certainly their parents and grandparents were uh, subject to uh, adhesion uh, work arrangements where they were basically told what to do. So I think that's what excites me about uh, uh, about uh, about this work, but I'm also excited about looking at how to test some of these concepts. Uh, and and Ida talked about it's time for action now. So I'm really excited about how to how are we um, turning this uh, what we've learned into um, um, some 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 real test beds and 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 work in action. Well, and do you think we have the right people at the table? You have thoughts about? Uh, so I do. I always uh, just uh, want to make sure that. The people at the table who are having these conversations need to look like the people who are actually subject to having these types of challenges. So we know that a lot of black people and brown people are in very vulnerable um, work situations and certainly in very precarious wealth situations. And so as we craft solutions, then I think it would be important for us to make sure that we have a, a room that looks like people who are facing those types of challenges. Alex, what are you excited about? Um, well, one of the things I'm very excited about is, is the whole idea of portable benefits, um, not just for retirement, more broadly. And specifically, how do we turn that from a, a concept, uh, where I know there's been some, a lot of good discussion, to you know, actual functioning pilots, uh, functioning marketplaces? How do we start to think about what is the policy architecture like that for that look like? Uh, what are the delivery platforms and institutions who could be part of that? in a way that will actually protect workers, uh, that workers will trust. Uh, what are the products, um, both financial and non-financial, and technologies that can be part of delivering that? And then how can we start to actually test things in the real world, get experience, get data, report back, iterate? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of promise, I think, you know, not only for the, the world of pensions and retirement, but uh, across health, across training, across broader financial wellness, including short term. And so, you know, that's the kind of work that uh, I'm very, very excited to be involved in. That's great. And Allison, I think one of the most exciting pieces of this work for me personally has been the work with employers. And I, I think employers' new level of engagement and the opportunity to reach people yeah. uh, using employers. Can you speak a little bit about sort of where you see your work with employers going? What excites you about that? Sure. I mean, I think that um, we're, it's so interesting to me because we're, we're all sort of focused on different things, but I do think there's an optimism here right now um, on, these, on the big picture questions on, you know, both of you brought up risk, for example, and thinking about what role, you know, companies sort of recognizing that risk has shifted away from employers and what does that mean in terms of their overall engagement as well as the kinds of jobs that they're creating. And um, for me personally, I think that um, on sort of the work question and quality questions and a lot of the work that you and Maureen have been doing, um, as well as just other things that I'm seeing out there defining what a quality job means and bringing employers to the table for that, that there's this moment where we have convenings going on. We increasingly have groups um, that are standing up and saying, you know, we're moving away from sustainability or we're, we're 
we're redefining sustainability to talk not just about the environment, but about companies' responsibilities for their own workforces. Um, and then we have um, organizations like Just Capital and certainly B Lab and SASB and others that are trying to actually measure what companies are doing under the hood. And so I think that there's going to be an interesting coalescing in the next couple of years on what does it mean, what does a quality job mean, and what role do companies have in defining that and then meeting it. And if they're not not, then what role do they have in this conversation? Um, what you know? How, how do they interact with portable benefits? How do they interact, sort of, with underserved communities that they might not be creating work opportunities for, but they're certainly serving and working and sort of operating in? And so, what expectations do they have as anchor institutions as well to be part of the solutions to either what their workforce or the broader communities they're in are experiencing? And do you have unique thoughts about who, obviously, I would assume you feel strongly business should be at the table. I mean, do you have thoughts of, about who's not at the table? or? Well, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, from just capital, obviously, we believe the American people should be at the table. And that um, in this moment of populism, there's clearly a, a lack of voice that that just people generally feel. Um, the Again, just workers, workers specifically sort of um, the day-to-day -day experiences that people are facing, I think, is really important, as well as, um, as well as from a company perspective, it's very interesting to interact with um, companies themselves because oftentimes we're working with a, a huge array of companies um, uh, within uh, roles, if it's marketing or sustainability or investor relations. Oftentimes, the people that aren't at the table is uh, folks who are doing HR um, and who are actually working on the day-to-day -day sort of benefit and and sort of this this area that in oftentimes we hear is a little bit more antiquated um, than some of the other areas within a company and so ensuring that we have the people who are actually at the front line making benefits decisions and dealing with software um, that 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 actually has real impacts on people's day-to-day -day lives and so ensuring that sort of you know both the HR side and workers are, are sharing that and and showing what isn't currently working and um, and creating opportunities and sort of identifying ways that it really is just a efficiency question rather than anything else but through those sort of efficiency decisions you can have huge impact on huge workforces and Andrea I think you're always excited <laughs> <laughs> but what are you particularly excited as it relates to this well, work the first thing is we have a lot of data. And what we've discovered, and those of you who have looked through the Prosperity Now scorecard and the data that we have, is that it changes the conversation because suddenly people aren't battling over turf, but they're looking at the reality of the economic reality. So I'll just use one data point out of all the data, which is we have a report called the Ever-Growing Gap. And what it looks at is the racial wealth divide. And what it measures is if African-American wealth continues to grow at the rate it's growing today, it'll take 228 years for African-Americans to have the same wealth as white people today. And it'll take 74 years for Hispanic families. That one data point has resounded more powerfully than many, many others in basically saying we need very significant solutions to come to the table if we're ever going to talk about opportunity in this country and change the structure by which people live their lives. And also, what I think is so powerful, 
many of you have seen the, the research that Rod Shetty has done, right? That even kind of African-American families that have high salaries, he calls it wealth, it's not, are lagging, but he doesn't look at their wealth. And as all our staff said, if he had looked at the wealth of these households, the outcomes that he found, he could have predicted from the get-go because of those differences. So with that data, what I have seen across the country is all sorts of new partners coming together mm -hmm. because people across every sector understand that if they don't deal with the financial insecurity of their patients, of their clients, of their workers, they're not going to accomplish their old goals and they're leveraging their resources. And then the last piece, as we know, we have lost every program that matches the savings of low-income people uh, in the last year and a half. And we have companies such as Prudential and other companies that have stepped up and said, this is unacceptable. And we need to begin to innovate in ways that help people bring saving, build savings on the short term and the long term. And that is why your data is so critical. Because companies can say, we are platforms that can achieve scale, not the scale of the federal <coughs> government, but can achieve meaningful scale until we're able to bring them in as a partner again, and doing this at the local and state level where there's an incredible amount of innovation. And innovation that goes into, and I'll, I'll add one more plug for the work here, the Job Quality Fellowship, which really is how do we reinvent jobs. Um, for the first time, I asked my staff to nominate folks for that fellowship who were bridging these two worlds who's in the workforce, looking at the quality of work, but also building savings and assets. And these folks were so excited to be able to bridge those worlds and figure out how on a day-to-day -day basis we can work together. And Maureen has a huge smile on her face for those of you. So I know you want to say, and so we have about four minutes left before we move to questions. I'd like to give everyone an opportunity, just one minute, about what are the action steps for you, and what do you want to leave? What do you think folks should leave with today? For so just one minute, Todd, we'll kick off. Yeah. So uh, really quickly, I, another thing I'm really excited about is that the the conversation has changed within economic development circles. So these are people who are responsible for bringing and thinking about jobs and how jobs are created in communities, and now they are beginning to pivot. Uh, so I'm excited about the fact that every community didn't want Amazon by saying they wanted 50,000 jobs paying $100,000 a year. Some communities said, I need to think about the indigenous people. Who are the people here and where? Wh what kinds of opportunities do they need in order to move ahead? For the very first year, the economic, International Economic Development Council is having uh, their annual meeting and it's about equitable economic development. So thinking about job quality, not just the traditional metrics around the number of jobs or either the amount of investment, uh, and think, digging down into that. So I'm excited about that, and so I took up more than my minute, so I can't answer the question you just asked me. <laughs> Such a good but you gave Allison enough time yes. to think about it, because I didn't put this in the prep. So Allison, what do you, what, in one minute, what do you want people to leave with? Um, you know, I think that um, the, the, I feel like we're moving away from, and I know my, um, 
my organization agrees away from the Milton Friedman sort of shareholder primacy. All it takes is to be the most important thing. The only thing is for companies to be delivering um, value for their shareholders. I think one of the reasons we're moving away from that is one, it's not working for communities and not working for society. It's also not working for companies, um, and it's not working. And, and so it's not working. Period. Um, what role we have to play is to be having new expectations about what we should be expecting um, in these conversations overall about what role companies should be playing forward. And I think that the more we can be asking those questions and uh, be making decisions, we have a new fund, which I'm not supposed to talk about, but, um, but which can be sort of making decisions, um, either your dollars or where you're working based on, um, based on these expectations, sort of the more we'll be able to incentivize and to be encouraging this sort of shift um, towards a new kind of um, holistic corporate um, behavior and decision-making. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I love the points that were made about it not being either or, you know, between short-term and long-term, between income and wealth. I think those are terrific points uh, to leave with. They're not my points, but I would reinforce them. Um, you know, I think, I think for us, um, you know, it's really about um, trying new things. Um, you know, if we want to try and reverse the decline and call it retirement plan coverage or pension coverage, then we have to Think about uh, new new kinds of partnerships, whether it's you know uh, with labor unions or new worker organizations or associations or sectors in the case of nonprofit sector, and and see what works, and um, and try to bring you know new new people to the table, um, including you know I've got some new ideas from you as well in terms of um, the employer conversation not being a one-dimensional conversation. There's many different parts within an employer. Uh, try to think a little bit differently about that as well. Andrea, you want to take us home? So I'd uh, make one more Aspen link and then one final link, which is um, it also brings us to look at the entire family and what these pieces need to look like to create household financial security. So I was lucky to be uh, a fellow in the Ascend program. And one of our most exciting areas of work with children's savings accounts to help break the intergenerational transfer of poverty by getting an account to a kid as early as in kindergarten. But what that did was really change how the parents and their workplaces helped to see this issue. And then I'll say a final thing. I see my friend Mary Griffin here. And uh, one of the things I want to say is by doing this work well, it also supports consumer financial protection. And if there's an area where all of us need to take responsibility for advancing that, Again, in light of losing one of the most important policies that has ever been enacted in terms of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, having these kind of programs and initiatives helps bring the message of consumer financial protection and the options of how to create a stable financial life. Helpful. We're now going to open it up for questions. I'm told that if you're streaming online, you can tweet a question to us, which sounds very exciting. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, please raise your hand. We have some, some folks going with the mic. So, awesome. Thank you. Anne Can you give Hoff us your name and, and yes. you're with us? Yes, Ann Hoffman from the Woodbury Fund, but also a lifetime in the labor movement. And until the very end of this discussion, the whole hour, I hadn't heard anybody talk about transferring wealth. We have the 1% that's got it all, and we've got to start talking about how we 
move that into the hands of people who don't have it. We can't create equality without getting some of the money back from the 1%. And the other thing that I wanted to raise, and it finally got raised, was the idea that corporations are supposed to serve only their shareholders. It's nonsense, and it can't work. That they need to consider their workers and their communities at least. Thanks for the question and, and kind of statement. Um, Andrea, can I ask you to respond on, on the wealth piece? So uh, we just launched a campaign called Fair Shot 2020, which looks into the structure of the tax code and the fact that the overwhelming majority of the, as of our last count, $660 billion worth of incentives for wealth building goes not to the top 1%, but the top 1% of the 1%. And that's just bad economic policy, let alone bad morality. So how do we change those tax policies so that we provide the kind of incentives to the asset poor majority that then helps drive the economy and changes the economic structure? So I'll start with that. Awesome. Allison, do you want to say anything about the role of companies? Uh, just to agree, I mean, you know, uh, we're trying to, um, as I've talked about, I mean, we're trying to redefine what it means to be a successful company today and simultaneously building the business and investor case for it. Um, I think, you know, my our founder sort of talks about is modernizing capitalism, but ultimately we just have to go there and we've seen the We've seen the results of, of what you're talking about, shareholder primacy, and, and clearly we need to be shifting. And so that's what that's what my organization's trying to do. So so yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Additional questions right here in the front. My name is Sarah Seriba Lameño. I'm with the Center for Responsible Lending. Thank you so very much for your presentation and your remarks. Um, my question is, uh, um, and I'll just preamble it very simply by saying, uh, the wealth of our nation was created to poli through policy. Um, and so in that regard, I applaud um, any initiative that tries to find market-based solutions to a problem that has a very long history set through policy. Right? We will not be able, even if we change, and I support uh, changing the tax code so that people who have less are able to have more, um, but I don't think that we would be able to actually solve it just uh, through a piecemeal approach. So I want to challenge all of you to, to think about boldly in what bold aspirational ideas can we begin to put on the table that are really going to bring about change because we can't wait 228 years or 70 whatever years. Thank you. Todd, do you want to share maybe some of your thoughts on Yeah, so some of these, are, I'll just say, are not necessarily my own ideas, but, uh, well, I mean, the first obvious one has to do with elections, so that we can just take that. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it needs to be said. But other things like, what are we teaching in our business schools? And how can we think about having a different uh, kind of uh, way that we, are, we think about business success? So we've got, it's got to start somewhere. I think the other place, places would be our management consulting firms who have a lot of influence in terms of companies and their strategies. So there's an ability to influence there. So I think that 
we have to develop strategies to, to, to proselytize more people who, who believe that I'm wealthy, but my worker also can have wealth, and that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be able to do what I need to do and have, a, have, have success also. So uh, going back to this notion about shared prosperity, uh, and then the last part is just values. And so um, I think something has happened, and I think it could also happen in the home. So we can, you, you, your child might be the next, um, I don't know, Steve Jobs or what, whatever. So just being able to, to instill in, in our children that, you know, I, I, I can do well, but I also support other people. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. And Alex, I wanted to ask you, I think you have an interesting perspective, um, obviously being a Canadian and sort of you know, peeling in, but you do a lot of, uh, of work in the US. Do you have any thoughts? Um, well, I mean, most of the thinking we do around policy you know, is, is around our, our retirement system. And you, know, you might be surprised to know that Canada has some of the same weaknesses in our retirement system as the US. Uh, if you work outside the public sector, you know, you're not likely to have a retirement plan through your work. And, as Andrea alluded to, we have a kind of upside-down regressive tax system as well. So one of the initiatives we're working on, I wouldn't say it's a, a, a massive initiative, but we think it's a very important one, is to try to bring a version of the U.S. savers credit to Canada so there is some incentive for low and moderate income people to save. And hopefully we can learn from some of the lessons of what hasn't worked about the savers credit in terms of delivery and also design. Um, may, yes. Um, we just did away with the traditional rule. What is it like in Canada. Well, well we, <laughs> if we could bring some of that energy up to Canada as well, because many investors don't have fiduciary protection. We don't have very good fee disclosure. And uh, consumer financial protection is quite weak. So although we do some things very well, I would say, uh, you know, from a healthcare perspective, I think generally works well. From a public sector pension perspective, generally works well. We have a lot of gaps. And uh, low and moderate income uh, households outside the public sector are, are not particularly well served at all. So, you know, that's within our space, but, you know, there's a, a much broader space in terms of a more redistributive tax policy and minimum wage laws and all sorts of really important things that have to happen at the policy level. It sounds like a deeper conversation over cocktails, <laughs> too. Uh, Katie says we have a question from Twitter. Yes, we have a question from Twitter. Tracy Scott asks, can the panel talk about mounting debt and its depressing impact upon work and wealth? Yeah. Andrea, can you kick us off there? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so there's uh, several different kinds of debt. One of the interesting data points is that the most common kind of debt is still credit card debt. And that's still what people are using to make up for the fact that they have had profound wage stagnation and that basically this becomes the way that they live at a level that their wages should allow. But with that comes a couple of key things, which is, I can't look at the person who asked the question, so I'll look. Oh, there you are. Oh, great. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> so uh, so um, the two other issues that I want to raise is the very high percent of Americans who have a subprime credit score. So what that means, because of whatever debt they have, it could be student debt, it could be others, that their cost of borrowing and their access to borrowing is severely compromised. And so one of the key issues is <clears throat> how do we continue to innovate, we haven't talked about this at all, in helping people to build their credit and linking that to the right kind of financial products to do it. 
The last piece, which everybody knows, and I don't want to go into this, is the implication of excesses amount of student debt, right, for not just household formation, but for all the other economic uh, activities that these people would be engaging in, that they are conscripted because of the student debt and the position of the debt on their own personal balance sheet and credit score. And one of the things I wanted to mention is here at Aspen in the financial security program, we're doing really impressive work on debt primarily to our EPIC program and our consumer insights program. So I'd really encourage you all to uh, look at that work as well. Um, Question. Uh, Eric, I see you in the back, and I know you. So. Hey, Eric, small business majority. Uh, it's for the whole panel, but also for uh, Alex. You mentioned some of these pilots you're doing and thinking through, I guess we can take the retirement space. Could you dig in to what those products uh, look like and kind of some takeaways that you might have uh, learned uh, from doing those pilots with unions, et cetera? Um, well, I'll focus maybe on the nonprofit one, because that's probably most relevant to small employers. So the proposal is basically to create a a nonprofit entity that would be a portable retirement plan for a sector. So anybody who works in the sector, whether you're an employee or a freelance worker, could join this portable retirement plan. It would look a little bit like some of the state-sponsored plans that are out there, except it would also include employer contributions. And I would say be on an optional basis. And it would be, uh, I would say, more, perhaps more robust in terms of um, the, the type of, of design if it were able to, to scale. Um, but it's at, you know, it's at a, a pilot phase. We need to get a certain number of employers signed up to it. Uh, I would say in the early uh, first couple of weeks of this campaign, the amount of employer interest has been quite high uh, because I think that some of the main objectives, objections that employers have to providing a retirement plan, cost, complexity, uh, legal responsibility, are taken away from the employer with this type of model. The employer becomes basically a participant who can offer it, make contributions, et cetera. And so on that, I think there are a lot of employers that want to offer high quality benefits to their workers. And so we're trying to take away some of the main obstacles um, and, and make it voluntary and also to try to facilitate a bit of a conversation around decent work in a sector that they has wanted to have that conversation for, for some time. Uh, so you know, complex to get going, early days, but uh, you know, I'd say a positive amount of, uh, of early employer interest. I think we have time for one more question, sir. I'm Norm Curlin from the Center for Economic and Social Justice. And I have a question regarding, uh, no question about work. The system ought to create work which you love. Mm -hmm. But now we have robots that are replacing human beings in many industries. Artificial intelligence. I'm, I'm, I'm not clear from any of the discussion so far, but I'm wondering how many, whether there have been any uh, discussions on the ideas of a man named Louis Kelso. You, nobody? Uh, okay. But if you're familiar with uh, worker ownership, I worked with Kelso, and we got the first ESOP laws through the Congress in 1974. And there are now millions of workers who've be able, who've been able to purchase, become. So owners. we're just running. Do you have a question? We're just yes, running. Yes, I alone. do. <laughs> okay. Because I, I first I wanted to hear anything about any of the speakers in terms of that, because what we're talking about is a way in which the Federal Reserve has a power 
to generate money under Section 13 of the Federal Reserve Act so that workers have become owners without putting up their own money on credit, capital credit Great. that pays for itself. Okay. However, thank, thank you. I'm just saying, just because we're running really low on time. Todd, do you want to say anything? And then we would love to take this uh, offline. We're actually in our economic opportunities program. We actually have a senior fellow, Joseph Blasi, who's been doing a lot of work on employee shared ownership. And we uh, just uh, just about a month ago had a, a whole day event um, on the issue. But Todd, do you do you have any I, thoughts? I, I actually don't want to say anything, but I'm just so grateful to not have to say the viewpoints are my own. They do not represent the Federal Reserve <laughs> Bank or Federal Reserve System. So uh, I finally get a chance to say that. So I don't, uh, I mean, I, I, I appreciate uh, the comment, and certainly the Federal Reserve and others have done a lot of work at looking at the dynamics of labor market, the changing nature of work, um, and those are all tremendous concerns to how the economy is going to function, um, not the least of which is how we think about uh, youth who uh, often have their first jobs at uh, McDonald's or other places where they learn employability skills. But yet, if those jobs are going to robots, then that's even fewer jobs that they have. So it's a serious concern, and I don't necessarily have a good answer for you. Wonderful. Well, please join me in thanking our panel for their insights and for their time and travel. And then we just quickly before we close, I'd like to say we have good news and bad news. The good news is that we have cocktails. The bad news is that because it's so hot today in Washington, uh, we're not going to be able to enjoy those on the rooftop. But we do have a beautiful setup out here where you can still see the views and folks can go outside. Um, thank you all so much uh, for joining us. And uh, please uh, join us in the foyer for uh, drinks and conversation. Mm.